I think we love that kind of worshiping heart, and of course the Lord loves that kind of worshiping heart. I think of Matthew 19, 14, let the little children come unto me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. There's an awful lot we can learn from children, the simplicity of their faith, and the thanksgiving of their heart, and that's what we want during this Thanksgiving season throughout the rest of the year, to be worshipful and to be filled with thanksgiving for who God is. Now, if you've been at Highland for any length of time, you know that the Sunday prior to Thanksgiving, I usually preach a Thanksgiving message. Maybe it would be from Luke 10, 38 to 42, and we'd see the heart of a worshiper like Mary, and even the heart of a worshiper like Martha. Or maybe it would be Luke 17, where Jesus heals 10 lepers and only one returned to thank the Lord. Or maybe it would be the Hallel, that's a Hebrew word for hallelujah or praise, the Hallel Psalms from Psalm 113 to 118, where the Jews would regularly gather on a regular basis and they would either sing the Hallel songs or they would have them proclaim to them to remind them to have hearts of thanksgiving. And all of those are great passages to turn to. It might be a little more suspect, the passage I want to turn to today. Because Habakkuk learns thanksgiving in the end. But in the beginning, Habakkuk struggles with this idea of thanksgiving. In fact, uh, Habakkuk is going to essentially ask, uh, Are you there, God? Do you care, God? Are you fair, God? As the Babylonians ensnare us, God, and eventually they're going to see the greatness of God, and they're going to say, none compares to you, God. And that's where we need to end up. Because that leads to a heart of a worshiper. That leads to a heart of thanksgiving. When we understand that none compares to God, And he does care, he is fair, he is there, and none compare to God. That leads us to a heart of thanksgiving. That's the heart I need, that's the heart that you need. As you and I look at the book of Habakkuk, it's fair to say that we know almost nothing about this prophet. Outside of the fact that this prophet gives us three chapters... That's almost the sum total of what we know biographically about him. But we know a lot more because we know the era, the time period in which he writes. He writes somewhere between 619 and 586 B.C. In fact, I'm going to be more precise. I think he's writing just around 609 B.C. Now we know to whom he's writing. He's not writing to the ten northern tribes that at the division of the kingdom retained the nation or name Israel. We know he's not writing to them because they no longer exist. You remember that because of the incessant immorality and lack of ethics and idolatry of the ten northern tribes, finally God had warned them enough is enough And he brought discipline in their lives. And in 722, Shalmanasar of Assyria came and he ransacked the ten northern tribes. 
And rather than carry them into captivity, what actually happened is many Assyrians intermingled, intermarried, and became at one with the northern tribes. And so we have a new race developing, half Assyrian, half Jew. The area geographically north of Jerusalem is called Samaria. And so these people became known as Samaritans. And by and large, they abandoned all but the first five books of Scripture. And they by and large abandoned the God of Scripture and set up a rival temple in Mount Gerizim, and a rival faith. It's not to that group that God sends Habakkuk. Instead, Habakkuk ministers, along with Ezekiel and Jeremiah, all at the same time, to the two southern tribes of Judah. And it's rather a dark, bleak time in Judah's history. It's the 7th century before Christ. And during this period of time... The law of God was lost, 2 Chronicles 34. We're not talking about leaving the scrolls on the side table to collect dust. We're saying that they lost the word of God. For 75 years, nobody interacted with the word of God. And then God raised up the boy king, Josiah, who came to the throne at age 8. By age 20, he tore down the high altars of the false prophet Baal. And by age 28, he turned his attention to the Temple Mount that had been abused and neglected for almost a century. And they repaired the Temple Mount and they cleaned it up. And the high priest Hilkiah, while he's in the the sacred parts of the temple, he rediscovers the law of God. He finds what had not been read for 75 years, and Josiah gathers all the people together, and for several days the law of God is read for the first time in almost eight decades. And the people are rent in their heart, and they're broken, and there's confession, and there's repentance, and there's revival. A nation turns back to God. Oh, that that would be true in our nation. A nation turns back to God. What a reason for thanksgiving. But then in 609, at age 39, Josiah is killed in battle. And the next king is Zedekiah, an evil king. And, or excuse me, Jehoiakim, an evil king. And the good die, and the bad live, and that's the time period that Habakkuk ministers. And he wonders, are you there, God? Do you care, God? Are you fair, God? Why has the righteous died? Why is the evil present? And why, God, are you not doing something to chastise Judah? And so let's pick up in our text. I want to read verses 2 to 4 from the book of Habakkuk. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Are you even there, God? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Do you even care, God? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you 
idly look at wrong. Are you fair, God? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth, perverted. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want God to raise up a prophet like Habakkuk for our country. I'm not interested. Oh, there's a lot about Habakkuk I like. He sees the immorality of his land and he'll speak against it, even if it's unpopular. I love the fact that he sees the lack of ethics in the land and he'll call a spade a spade and say, that's wrong, that's sin. I love that about Habakkuk. I love the fact that he cares for those who perhaps are hurt or have been afflicted or faced injustice. I love that about Habakkuk. I love that he will speak even to the high and mighty and the powerful, those who could negatively influence him, and he'll tell them truth. I love that about Habakkuk. But what I don't admire about Habakkuk is he's going to challenge the justice and the goodness of God. What I don't admire about Habakkuk is that one of the attributes that probably is spoken more eloquently and more times in both the Old and the New Testament, Habakkuk hates. God is a slow to anger, thank goodness, and abounding in love God. Do you realize that's one of the most oft-repeated statements in Scripture? God is slow to anger, and he's abounding in love. We love that about God. Habakkuk hates it. I cry out violence, and where are you? He's going to say, your eyes are more pure, and yet you do nothing, God. He's going to attack the goodness, the justice, the rightness, the perfection of God. He's a patriot. He's one of Ezekiel's watchmen on the wall. You remember Ezekiel, same time period, calls the people to be watchmen on the wall, to call a spade a spade, to see the immorality and the lack of ethics and not to pretend it doesn't exist. He wants us to be watchmen on the wall, but he wants us to pray for our nation, to fast for our nation, to love our nation, to care about our nation, to care for the people in our nation, to pray for the leadership, whether we like it or not, whether we like them or not. That's what a watchman on the wall does. That's what Ezekiel calls us to. But that's not exactly what Habakkuk does. He's got part of it right. I suspect there was a day and age when he prayed and he fasted. <coughs> but now he wants to go nuclear. He wants God to take them out. And he challenges the goodness of God because God is slow to anger and God is abounding in love and God is patient. Thank goodness that he is. And so he says, you, God, look idly. You look idly, God, at wrong. And how does the Lord respond? Look at verse 5. Look among the nations. See Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Now I think at that point, Habakkuk straightens up. He's getting excited. 
God's going to take action. God's doing a work. Finally, God's going to take Judah out. And then he begins to slouch and he begins to frown as God goes on. Let me read verses 6 to 11. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, Iraq, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded, Hebrew word Nora, and fearsome, Hebrew word Ayom. Put together, it tells us that they are locked and loaded. They have just finished a 17-year war with Assyria. They have taken out the Assyrian Empire. This is the nation to be feared. And God is raising up this nation, Babylon, the Chaldeans, a rock against his own people. Their justice and dignity go forth, not from God, but from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind, and they go on. And Habakkuk can't believe it. He's been calling on God to do something. He wants to be that watchman on the wall that doesn't only pray and doesn't only fast, but he's actually calling God to go nuclear. And when God does, he doesn't like it. He's not at all happy. On a scale of 1 to 10, Judah is a 7 or 8 in terms of evil. Babylon is a 12 out of 10. You can't get any more evil than Babylon, the archetypical nation throughout Scripture, even in the end times. And God raises them up. How can you look, God? You whose eyes cannot look on evil, whose eyes are fair. How can you do this, God? It is not right. And so Habakkuk says this in verse 13. You, God, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. What a turn of events. A moment ago, Judah is the evil nation. Get him, God. Sick him, God. Unload on them, God. And now when God is going to bring discipline, chastisement, he doesn't like the way God's doing it. He's got a preferred plan. Have you ever had one of those? God, if you just listen up, I got a preferred plan. Not really liking yours. We're going to go with plan B, mine. And we give God the preferred plan. That's exactly what God's prophet is doing. And he's asked God to bring discipline. He's asked God to bring chastisement. And then when God does, he says, no, 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 that is the wrong plan. You, God, are not that good. You're not that righteous. It's unfair. God, you've been sticking your celestial hands in your celestial pockets for far too long, and now when you act, you act impure, unright. It's not fair. We live in a day and age that says that, doesn't it? It's not fair. Now, most of us aren't like Habakkuk. We don't ask for justice. We ask for mercy. But when justice comes, we cry out with a, it's not fair. 
Jill Briscoe wrote a book called Harrow Sparrow. And in Harrow Sparrow, she writes to children, but I think it's the lesson the adults need. She takes the book from Matthew 10. I want to read it, verses 29 to 31. You know it so well. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And are not one of them that will fall to the ground? Never do so apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And the point of the book is this. We live in a day and age when God brings discipline or difficult things happen or challenging things happen in our life and we say, not fair, God. Not fair. And what does the text say? It doesn't say the sparrow lives, does it? It says the sparrow dies. It doesn't say the hair on the head stays. It says the hair on the head falls. But the lesson of Harrow Sparrow, the lesson of the text is the sparrow doesn't die aside from God's sovereign permission. The hair on the head doesn't fall aside from God's sovereign permission. You see, we tend to read the text as though every outcome should be the way we want. But that's not what Scripture says. It never promises that there won't be difficulties in our life. Habakkuk kind of knows that. In fact, he's been calling for discipline. But then when God sends discipline, he doesn't like it. And he cries, unfair, unfair. He doesn't understand that God has much more going on than, than what we see. He has this idea that Babylon is more wicked than Judah. And in fact, that was true. And that Babylon is getting away with it. Just like Judah was getting away with it. Finally, God's doing something. But God is giving Babylon a free pass. Have you ever felt that way in life? You look around and you see all these Facebook families. And they're perfect, aren't they? They show you the picture of what they ate for dinner last night. And man, it looked good. And they show you the... The 13, 14-point buck they shot, and you sat in the stand and saw nothing all day. And then they tell you about the vacation they're going on. And they talk about the family plans, and you say, Lord, it's just not fair. They're not as righteous as I am, and yet they're being blessed, and I'm not. It's not fair. And rather than hearts of thanksgiving, we have hearts of bitterness and complaint. It's not fair. And that's exactly what Habakkuk is doing. He's not arguing that Judah doesn't need justice. Oh, they need justice. But to bring the Babylonians in on it, they're getting away with things. And yet, they aren't. You see, God has this massive tapestry of all of history, the history before us, the history that will be ahead of us, Seven billion people, and we're a little dot. A little dot in time, a little dot in central Wisconsin. And we only see the small bit of the tapestry. And somehow we think we understand and we tell God where justice is and why it's unfair. And we don't realize there's a bigger picture. Well, that bigger picture included Cyrus the Great, Cyrus II, the Medo-Persian Empire, and 539 that will take Babylon out. They don't get away with it. 
they're going to have discipline. They're going to have chastisement. It's just a little further along in the tapestry. And Habakkuk is stuck in one spot, in one moment of time. (laughs) Just like you, just like me. And having been stuck in one moment of time, he fails to see all that God is doing. And so the heart of a thankful person, the heart of a worshiper, is to trust God that he is working his plans. And we only see a little dot, and someday we'll get to heaven, and maybe he'll give us a glimpse of the tapestry. Maybe we'll see the whole picture, and we're going to stand back and say, Oh, oh, how did I ever doubt you, God? Oh, you were working, God, and I didn't see it. I only saw one piece of the puzzle, and the puzzle had 2,000 pieces. And from that one little piece of the puzzle, I didn't get the picture of all that you were doing. Why was my faith so weak? That's what's going to happen to Habakkuk. That's what's going to happen to us. Now, I don't know how much time is between chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 3 all the way to 2-4. I'm not sure how much time we have. I'm gathering it's a few days. But in between, we have a prophet do something incredibly stupid. One of the stupid things that a prophet ever does in 2-1, let me read it. I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower. I will look out to see what he will say to me And what I will answer concerning my complaint. He doesn't understand that God's ways are not our ways. He doesn't understand what Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heaven are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than my ways, and your thoughts higher than mine. He doesn't understand that. Instead, he says, God... I've got a preferred plan. You're not meeting it. I'm going to build my watchtower. I'm going to cross my arms, and I'm going to wait, and you, God, are going to answer me. I wonder how that worked for him. Maybe not so well. But have we ever done that? A job we've worked really hard at. It doesn't seem fair. Someone else gets the promotion, or we get fired. Someone gets sick. A loved one dies. A relationship we've worked on so hard and we poured ourselves into disintegrates. And we say, God, you owe me an explanation. And again, I don't know how long it is between 2-1 and 2-4. I'm going to assume a couple days, but somewhere in there, God begins to change the mind of the prophet. And the prophet begins to see that he doesn't know all that he thought he knew, that God's ways are not our ways, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, that God's thoughts are higher than ours, that there is a huge tapestry that God is working. We see one little dot, and there's this massive seven billion person, and all the time before, and all the time that follows, and God is working all of it together, And somewhere in there, he comes to the realization that he doesn't know much. And so he says in Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. 
that's actually what Martin Luther quoted, isn't it? Except he quoted it from Romans chapter 1. How do the just live by doubting? No. How do the just live by complaining? No. How do the just live by railing against God? No. How do the just live by, by always challenging the goodness of God? No. The just shall live by faith. The just realize that his ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The just live by Romans 8.28. For we know that all things work together for good. For those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. That is those who are living for God and loving God. God will work the tapestry eventually in such a way that it will be for good. Isn't that the conclusion of the book? Let me read chapter 3, 17 to 19. I love this conclusion. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, none of this is good. The fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. And he makes me tread on my high places. And I want to put these three passages together. The end of Habakkuk. The middle of Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. The passage in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. If these things are true, then my concerns with God are nearsighted. If I'm walking with God, if I'm called according to his purpose, God will work things together in a way that ultimately will be good. Someday I'll get to heaven. Someday I'll get to see some or all of the tapestry. And someday... I'll say, oh, oh God, I never understood. I never knew. I could not comprehend. Forgive me. Sometimes when things really bad happen, I hear Christians say, just tell God about it. Go ahead, yell at God. He can take it. Well, he can. But yell at God? You know this is historical literature, right? 40% of the Bible is historical literature. That tells us what happened. It doesn't say go and do likewise. How do we evaluate historical literature? Through the epistolary literature. Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. The do's and don'ts of Scripture. And I'm pretty sure one of the don'ts is don't challenge the goodness of God. Don't tell God you're right and he's wrong. And don't tell God that he somehow owes us an answer. I'm pretty sure those are on the do nots. And so I've got to learn to walk by faith, not by sight. And believe that God will work all things together for good. And complain less and have thanksgiving more. If these three passages are true, I need to lead a life of expectation, wondering what God is doing even in the midst 
of evil. You remember what Joseph said in Genesis 50, 20 to his evil brothers? He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God never creates evil. God never wills evil. But God can use even the evil to bring about chastisement, discipline, correction, growth, maturity in our lives. This isn't a recipe to say, oh, well, God's got it all in control, so I shouldn't do anything. It's not what the Bible teaches. We ought to pray for revival. We ought to vote for revival. We ought to fast for revival. We ought to stand against evil in all of its many varied forms in our country, in our locale, in our world. But when we love God and we are called according to his purpose, we know the truth of 2 Peter 2.11, that we are strangers and aliens. This is not our home. This is not our future. This is not all we have. We have an eternity with God in heaven, a perfect place where there will never be any more tears or sorrow, sickness or death. That's our home. That's our future. And when we get there and we see the tapestry, we'll say, oh God, it's amazing what you were doing. I should have trusted you more. I should have worshipped you more. I should have had a heart of thanksgiving even more. I love the way the book ends. I want to read it again. Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off in the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high prices. That's what I need, not just on Thanksgiving, but all of the days of the year. I need to remember that his ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His thoughts are higher than mine. I need to remember that this is not home. I'm a stranger and alien. I'm passing through. I need to remember that God hasn't promised me a life without difficulty. The sparrow does die and the hair on the head does fall. But he promises to be with us, to sustain us. I need to remember that if I love God and I'm called according to his purpose, I'm living for him, he will eventually work all things together for good. And I need to remember that he will right all wrongs. And even if I don't see the discipline, even if it seems to be that some people have a better Facebook situation than I do, and they seem to be more evil than I am, someday we'll see what God has done and as God has worked right and good in all situations. Yet will I rejoice in God. That's what we're called to live. Let's pray. Father God, uh, though admittedly I'm not a fan of Habakkuk, I'm a fan of the lesson and where he ends up. And Lord, it could be named the book of Jeff. Because that's so often the way I act, the way he does. But Father, let it not be. Let us act like Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by faith. Let us act Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. 
that if even difficult things happen, yet will we rejoice in you. Give us hearts of worship, hearts of joy, hearts of thanksgiving. And help us to be watchmen on the wall who truly pray for our nation, who fast for our nation, who pray for our leaders, whether we like them or not, and ask for revival. Father, we're thankful that you're slow to anger and you're abounding in love. We love that about you. And we praise you for it in the name of Christ. Amen.